Night Talk, Monday to Thursdays, 10 to midnight. You remember not too long ago when uh, the United States of America was on the cusp of a war with Iraq. You remember not too long ago when Russia invaded the Ukraine. You remember not too long ago when we discussed pretty much last week the instability in Sudan, the insurgency taking place in the Tigray in Ethiopia. There is conflict all around the world, no matter where you look. And that conflict comes at a cost, the cost of buying weapons. We spent more on weapons as a, as, as a global community now than we have in recent history. More importantly, it means that we're anxious about something. And what is it that we're anxious about? Helmut Hitman, who's a South African military analyst and a consultant, starts off the conversation with us this evening. Helmut, good evening. Once again, an honor and a pleasure to speak to you. Let's start here. Is the world more unsafe today than it's ever been? And is there a correlation between that and what we spend on military spending buying arms? I'm not necessarily a hell of a lot less safe. But what has happened is that the, the notion that after the end of the Cold War, everything would be peaceful forever and ever, amen, that notion has now evaporated. You know, there were lots of things happening around. Iraq, you mentioned already, there was Afghanistan, etc. But nobody, well, no, I can't say nobody, the pessimists did. But nobody in politics expected a, a conventional war in Europe. That they thought was over. That was part of history, not going to happen again. And now it's happened. What you had after the Cold War, most European countries cut their defense funding by about 50%. The United States also cut back quite dramatically until 9-11. And that has now been reversed because they've now suddenly realized, hang on, the thousand-year peace has not arrived. And one reason for a quite dramatic escalation in spending is that there's a lot of backlog. Equipment has been left and unmodernized. Some equipment is discarded. Now suddenly they realize they've got to get it again. So now they're playing catch-up. And catch-up is always the most expensive way to try and do something. It'd be much cheaper to, to just maintain a capability. But what has happened, of course, with the, the invasion of, of Ukraine is a re, a re emergence, really, of state-versus-state state war mm. that is, is tricky. That, that's going to worry quite a few people. you also got the situation in the South China Sea, East China Sea, along the Indian border, China-India border, with China pushing the envelope. So those countries are busy rearming. So you've got Europe rearming largely because of Ukraine. You've got a lot of countries in Asia arming or rearming or expanding their forces because they're looking at China flexing its muscles. Um, you know, and then, well, the Middle East has always been difficult. It remains difficult. And in Africa, we have lots of problems. I think, in fact, in Africa, a lot of the problems are mainly intrastate, although some, like in the Congo, spill over borders. A lot of the problems probably are because governments don't actually have enough muscle. The, the security forces are too weak to really uh, protect things and control the country, with yeah. the net result that, that armed groups can arise and then become a problem. And then, then again, it's a, a case of catch-up. Yeah. Uh, who's the biggest spender? Or who are the biggest spenders? Oh, at the moment, it's, it's okay. In pure cash terms, it's, it's the Americans, and then you'll get people like the major European countries and the, the Japanese, the Chinese, and the Russians. If you're talking in terms of real money, i.e., what are they spending not just in their own currency, but if you're trying to compare to purchasing power, then China moves up quite a lot, and so does Russia, um, yeah. quite high as they do if you just take pure dollars. But it's the big guys mainly, and then, of course, countries like Saudi, um, Israel, 
Ivan, we don't really know what Ivan spends. These are the figures on, on public release, but they're spending a lot if you look at what they're doing. Um, and in smaller countries in the Middle East, like the UAE and Oman, also spending fair amounts because they're worried about what's going on around them. You know, it's a sort of scary stuff. Um, yep. Latin America and Africa not spending much. And South Africa is spending very little and heading down rather fast. And you see that with our inability to respond effectively in Cabo Delgado. Um, the challenge now trying to, to really extract South Africans out of Sudan. Um, yep. It's all a little bit embarrassing. Yeah, and so when spending goes up, somebody has to be profiting. Who are the biggest profiteers? Well, obviously the defense companies and the people who hold shares in them. Um, they make money. But uh, there's another thing to bear in mind, of course. The defense companies are not hiring a hell of a lot of people. So a lot of people are unemployed or underemployed are now shortly going to be talking to some of the bigger companies. Um, you know, the, the notion perhaps that defense spending just sort of poured down the gutter but in fact, defense companies employ people, the people are employed, buy things from other companies, so that you know, actually quite, po- quite a positive multiplier effect. And in fact, 10 years after the Berlin Wall came down, I, I wrote an article for, for James Defense Weekly, saying, right, we've now had a decade of peace, and defense spending cut by about 50%. Has anybody noticed taxes going down, or social services improving, or infrastructure maintenance improving? And the answer essentially was no. The money yeah. just sort of gets absorbed in the, in the state bureaucracy. It doesn't actually get spent on anything more efficient. So the, the benefit, the real benefit of less lower defense spending wasn't really there. Um, now, defense is not something you really want to spend on, ideally. I mean, you know, we don't really want to spend on burglar arms and security companies and fences either, but we have to. You, you just need to do time, do it intelligently. And doing it the way people have done it now in the last few decades of up to the bone and then suddenly splurge and trying to play catch-up is not an intelligent way to do it. Yeah. What would then be, and an, 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 this is a very rudimentary question, but it, it is one that's necessary, what would be the cost of not increasing your military spending if you're a, a, a big player, perhaps, in a increasingly globally unsafe environment? Well, if you lose influence, you become unable to protect your, your interests for instance, trade routes, if you're a trading country, um, possibly conceivably even vital interests, depending on what you're doing. If you're coming down from the big boys, taking it down to the, the devil of South Africa, for instance, um, what happens if Mozambique unravels totally? And we can't access electricity from Colorado. We won't be able to access gas from the existing gas fields, let alone from a new gas field. We might have problems of security of transport to Maputo port, which is important for our northern provinces. Uh, you might get piracy or maritime terrorism in Mozambique Channel, through which about half our imported oil comes, and all of our trade with the Mediterranean, in the Middle East, and the, the western seaboard of India. And if you can't secure those things, you have a problem, and you take economic damage. And that leads to social damage, and goes on from there. Bigger countries have similar problems, just on a, on a much, much bigger scale. Yeah, outsourcing is also a big part uh, of the value chain of military spending. Uh, and of course, uh, paramilitary groups like the Wagner Group are making quite a, uh, a pretty penny off of uh, this level of anxiety in the world. Is this a profitable time to go into the paramilitary business? And I ask that facetiously, but the question still is as serious. <laughs> Look, it, it probably is. I mean, some of them have made money during the Iraqi Afghanistan involvement by the United States. I mean, people like Blackwater and other companies made considerable amounts of money doing that. It's a, it's a funny thing. It's, it's a fairly 
Well, not really modern. I mean, way back you had the lunch place, you had lots of listeners and so on. But just the current, the current trend in that is it allows governments to play down what they're actually doing. They don't have mm. to report casualties that are taken by a private military company. These are not part of a government army. They can fudge the spending a little bit because they can spend, find money for them under some other budget that doesn't come under the defense budget. So it allows them to play down what they're actually doing. And there's the other uh, advantage in some situations that it's deniable or, or semi-deniable. You know, it wasn't us, it was that company. We can't really stop them as a free country. Mm. Um, in that sense, that South Africa was a bit silly with our legislation against uh, mercenaries, quote-unquote, because actually they can be a useful tool for governments because they can be deniable. Um, that allows you to gain intelligence, to, to uh, get some influence without actually formally deploying your own armed forces, which, which has all sorts of other implications. But the bottom line is, yeah, at the moment, there's money to be made in that game. Um, it's still in the Middle East. It's now the Russian companies, of course, and it's not just Wagner. Several other companies have now sprung up yeah. in Russia, getting in, getting on the act. Um, I think you will find some of the defense groups that we don't always hear about, and I can't off the top of my head now think some of the names, but there are several, particularly American companies, but some British too, that specialize in maintaining equipment and training people. They don't do fighting. They maintain equipment, they, they upgrade equipment, they train personnel, do things like that. And I think quite a lot of them are going to get on the act, uh, in on the act as well. Um, some yeah. within the States, for instance, where they do dissimilar air combat training for the U.S. Air Force. Um, others, and we've had them in South Africa too, in the U.K., for instance, they'll fly an aircraft that simulates a missile for air defense people. And it's more cost-effective for the defense force not to have to buy that particular aircraft all the time because the private contractor does it for several countries. So I think there's, there's quite a lot of niches like that will open up. But it depends a bit on how the war goes. If it, it, mm. if it isn't over quickly, then you'll find there'll be more focus on regular conventional armed forces, conventional sense of government forces rather than using private military companies in certainly the major countries. And you will still see yeah. PNCs operating in places like Africa, maybe parts of the Middle East and Latin America. Again, because they're largely deniable. You know, the Wagner Group stomping around Africa, for instance, most certainly say, well, that's not us. You know, it's a commercial agreement between a company and, and the local government. We've got nothing to do with it, um, much as Americans could say previously. So yeah. that's, that's, that side will stay stay active because it's a convenience. Yeah. Helmut, once again, thank you so much for your time this evening. I really do appreciate it. Always oh, insightful. Yeah. Anytime. Helmut Hitman, who is a military, a South African military analyst. And I want to bring into the conversation a somebody who's on the other side of the activist line. Terry Crawford Brown is an arms deal uh, act, who's an anti arms deal activist as well as a corruption activist. Terry, good evening. Uh, thank you good so evening. much for your time. Is this money well spent? It's a total disaster. We're spending, the world is now spending about $2.2 trillion, $2.2 trillion. 40% of that is by the United States, about 70% of that by NATO. By contrast, China accounts for about 10% and Russia about 3%. Now, a fraction of that $2.2 trillion could fund measures to counter the real crisis facing humanity, such as climate change, poverty, education, etc., etc. Unfortunately, the war business is totally out of control. And we've got to put a stop to it before it brings an, a collapse to, to the whole planet. We're in a very, very dangerous situation at the moment.
Yeah, uh, of course, this, this spending is, is born out of global in, uh, you know, uncertainty and insecurity. Um, perhaps then the question should be this. Are we a less, and it's the same question I asked Helmut, are we globally less safe than we were, say, 20, 30 years ago? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, in the last 30 years, there's been an attempt by the United States to impose its military and financial hegemony throughout the world. They thought with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the American system had won. But then they then expanded NATO eastward, which has now resulted in the, in the Ukrainian war. But yeah. Ukraine is simply a proxy prior to a war, potential war against Russia and another war against uh, Ch- uh, China. Um, and we are standing at, at the cusp of a total catastrophe. Yeah. Well, it's profitable, right? Uh, the companies some. that are... Pro- yeah, the companies that are profiting off of this, uh, are these companies upstanding? Oh, Lockheed, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, BAE, people like them, they're, they're creaming it at the moment. But the devastation to countries around the world is a disaster. Uh, the politicians in Washington, yes, they're also skimming it. But for, for the population at large, it's a total disaster. Yeah. What then are we to do? Because it doesn't seem like citizens ordinarily vote on the question about military spending. Um, so politicians don't have an incentive to turn down on that. That is exactly the problem. You know, if you go back to 1961, President Eisenhower warned about the risk to democracy and freedom resulting from what he then termed the military-industrial-congressional complex, in short, the war business. And we now see his warnings were absolutely appropriate. The war business is out of control, and particularly the U.S. Congress is simply in the, uh, in the laps of the war business, of the, of the arms companies, Lockheed Martin, etc. And so they, every year they, they add more and more to the budget, irrespective of the fact that the U.S. is 40% of the world's uh, military spending already. By the way, we're in a global recession, or at least we're tending towards a global recession. Where does this money actually come from? Is it countries just quantitative easing their way into military spending? Or is it countries lying about what's available for social spending? Uh, and then when it's time to spend on the military, suddenly the money is there. Where is it coming from? The money is coming from the rest of the world. Because the world is on a dollar um, reserve bank basis which was negotiated by Henry Kissinger in 1973-74 when he made Saudi, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, or Saudi oil the, 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 the basis of the dollar, uh, the dollar system. So we're all paying hugely for uh, oil, which then enables the, the U.S. to believe it, it has limitless amounts of money available for the war industry. So the rest of the world is actually paying for America's war. Yeah. So, is is do you, do you want to draw the link for me between the military-industrial complex and uh, the oil complex uh, globally? Is there a relationship there? Absolutely, because um, the U.S. doesn't actually have to pay for uh, for its war business. It's paid for by the rest of us who have to uh, pay dollars for oil. Right. It, this is worrying. This is really, really worrying. Um, perhaps the, the, the question then to ask is, as a last theme to explore here as we wrap up, what does this spell for the future of global conflict? Are we likely to be engaged in more global conflict when we're more armed, or are we less likely to engage in global conflict when more of us are armed? 
And I have, no, arms, this proves the point. The more arms, the more money you spend on, on, on arms, the more dangerous the place becomes. One can only hope and pray that this is, will bring the world to its senses and we put an end to this madness. Um, and um, there is a question increasingly rising whether the dollar is about to collapse as people bail out of, uh, out of the U.S. dollar. And yeah. um, we see what, ha- what happens there. But there, there are certainly people who are concerned that in the next few months we're going to enter a depression that will eclipse the 1930s depression. Yeah, this is certainly a lot more worrying than, than where we should be globally. Uh, Terry, thank you so much for your time this evening. I really, really do appreciate it. Terry Crawford-Brown, an anti-arms dealing corruption activist. Thank you.